and my own. <laughs> We're good friends. Anyway, uh, yeah, great to be with you in, in the new venue, and um, as I say, it may not be too long before you need to look for another one, but don't want to upset the elders by saying that. But uh, <laughs> I'm um, really pleased to be with you, and uh, you know, I had a long history with, with your church here, so it's thrilling to see all that's happening. Um, I was going to make a little bit of an introduction about some of our adventures, myself and Rachel and son Sam in uh, the different places. Hugh's already mentioned that, so I won't go into detail on that so we can get right into things. But uh, just to say, you know, we will be later. We're, we're going back to, we've been in Serbia, Rachel, uh, myself and Sam. We're going back at the end of the month. We'll be there for a couple of months serving, particularly among Roma churches in the south of Serbia. Quite amazing things that we're seeing God doing there. But then we'll be traversing back through the Netherlands and we will see uh, Benamika. Uh, in, uh, in Nijmegen there. Just want to commend you for just your open-handedness, releasing people to the mission. I think uh, a, servant, a servant heart and a generous spirit are two beautiful attributes, and I see it in abundance in, in this church family, just the uh, willingness to serve the mission of God and uh, a generous spirit to, to be open-handed with what God has given you I think that is very, very commendable. And uh, let's see the blessing. I think it's better to give than to receive. I read that somewhere. And uh, you will see the blessing. Sometimes it takes a while, but it seems like the blessing is upon you. We've got a, a fantastic uh, opportunity coming up in September to gather all of our European pioneers together in Malaga. We're having a conference there, Pioneer Europe, for anybody really that has a heart for mission in Europe, whether you've you've been sent or you're part of those sending so if that's something that grabs your attention then please feel very free to come and join us for that Ben and Mika will be there and the rest of the the Nine Megan team um, I want to speak today I'm going to I'm going to put something out there okay you can you can test this when I finish today I will say that what I'm going to preach about today is uh, pro I'm probably rarely going to get us going to preach a more important sermon okay it doesn't mean it'll be very good, but, it, <laughs> but <laughs> I will rarely preach a sermon more important than the sermon I'm going to preach to you this morning. That is my conviction, okay? And uh, we're going to pick things up in Ephesians and chapter 6. And it's very, very familiar words to you, but I'm going to have a particular application of these words that I hope will be a particular encouragement to you, looking at the armor of God, and uh, it says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Take your stand. <clears throat> if I have a title for my message today, that would be my title. Take your stand. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight <clears throat> of faith. So you've probably heard it said many, many times, the Christian life 
is not like a battle. It is a battle, yeah? Many of you will know what that feels like. In fact, many of our Bible heroes are soldiers. They're not philosophers. I'm not I'm saying anything bad about philosophers, but you don't, it's not sort of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. The heroes of the Bible are soldiers. David, Joshua, Gideon, Caleb. Paul says to Timothy, you've got to fight. It's a reminder that our life is a battle as a Christian. It is a battle. Don't be surprised. Friends of ours just moved out to Nijmegen to join Ben and Mika. They're having a battle to find somewhere to live. And just say, well, it's a battle. We're not expecting the enemy just to roll over when you're bringing in advance of the kingdom. It's going to be, you're going to face resistance. Fight. Be strong. Stand firm. Put on armor. Wrestle. Gird up your mind. Get hold of attitudes. Be disciplined. Press through. These are all the sort of the rhetoric of the New Testament. And it's a call to intentional behavior on our part. If we are passive, we'll get blown away. Okay? So, what, does that, what do we mean by that? We're not fighting for our salvation. Jesus has won that fight. Amen? Okay? His perfect obedience has secured our salvation. He has defeated the enemy. Okay, so what are we, we say, well, what are we fighting for? Are we fighting for, well, I, I think there are two things I would want to emphasize that we're fighting for. Number one, we're fighting for what it means to reign in life. Because the, the enemy can't steal your destiny, but he can steal your joy <laughs> in the journey. He can make your life miserable. And he's good at that. He's good at messing with our minds. He's good at lying to us. He's good at tripping us up and robbing us of a sense of living in the victory that Jesus has obtained for us. So we need to fight for that. We need to fight for our joy. We need to fight for what it means to live in the grace of God. We need to fight to keep supple and tender hearts in a cynical and bitter world. We need to fight for these things. We need to fight to overcome obstacles and setbacks and not allow that to uh, cause us to throw away our confidence or lose our hope. So that's one of the fights that we face, yeah? The other fight, I would say, for, that I want to particularly emphasize today is fighting for the demonstration and outworking of the values of the kingdom, of godly values in the world today. Now, if you don't know that you're in a fight for that, then you are not awake, right? You are in a fight from the minute you wake up for godly values in the world today. And the enemy is absolutely blasting us on this one in our culture. We are here as signposts to God's kingdom. We are demonstrating, outworking the kingdom of God on earth. Let your kingdom come. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. We are working it out in the midst of Babylon, spiritual Babylon, which is the antithesis of everything that God's kingdom is. And we're working it out. We're saying, no, we're going to show you what it means to live the way that God intends us to live. And as our creator, he knows the best way for us to live. So we're fighting for these values. Be strong. Take your stand. Put on the full armor. Our struggle is against the devil. Okay? It's not against flesh and blood. We have an enemy, the devil, and we're struggling 
against him, not for our spiritual existence or salvation, that is secure, but for what it means to enjoy that, living the benefit of that, but also to demonstrate to a broken world what it means to live in the kingdom of God with the values of God among us here. That's the struggle that we have. Take your stand. I just want to really want to emphasize this. You know, he says later in verse 13, um, put on the full armor so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. None shall pass. We're going to stand. We're not going to be blown away. We're not going to move to make life easier. We're going to stand on what we know is true. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says to uh, the, the church in Philippi, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, in 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, which means be mature, okay? Be strong. Again, Philippians 4, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Are we getting the message here? <laughs> okay, so we're in a struggle. What is the fight in our day? What are we standing against? Right, we're getting into the meat of things here now. What are we... What are we I, I'm going to say... This is very, very simple, all right? I would, I contend, I offer to you today our fight and our struggle today when you consider everything that we're facing in our culture and all the things that are happening in our nation and around the world, I, I would say our fight and our struggle is for the absolute truthfulness, sufficiency, and final authority of Scripture. This is the battleground. Now, this church, Redeemer Church Colchester, our whole family of churches that Hugh mentioned, we are built squarely on this value that the Bible has the central place in governing doctrine, practice, ethos, patterns of church life, as well as ethics and morality for life in the world. That is, you know, it's so beautiful in our worship to be pressing into the, the presence of God, and we need his presence and power in lavish abundance as we build firmly on the word of God. We don't trade one for the other, okay? It's not 50-50. When we talk about word spirit, it's not 50-50, it's 100-100, okay? Well, the fullness of the presence of God and the fullness of shaping ourselves and building ourselves on the word of God. So I do want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here. This is centrally important for us. And as I'm speaking, I think I'm really particularly speaking for people who are sort of, you know, please, those of us who are like 40 and over, don't switch <laughs> off. But I think we, we haven't had to face some of the things that people who are 40 and under are having to face and are increasingly having to face. So I'm particularly wanting to get this message across to people who are in the sort of the younger half because I think you're going to be facing battles and struggles that those of us who are in the upper half have not had to face. We didn't face it in our formative years. You are facing these things in a different way. This is important. If the Bible is not the final authority in these matters, then what is? 
What is the final authority in these matters? If, for example, the Bible does not define for us what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be a family, then what or who is defining these things? Now, British culture in the 21st century has let go of all biblical definitions of these things. They've just let it go. They've just thrown it out. Okay, the government has let go. The Bible no longer has the authority that it has had for many centuries in our land in determining our moral and ethical principles. This has happened very quickly within half of my lifetime. My parents' generation, who are not believers, my parents are not believers, but, and that generation would have broadly agreed with the general moral and ethical values of Scripture 30, 50 years ago. Broadly, that would have been the case. They wouldn't have thought about it, really. But yeah, we're going on with that. But today, we read that such views are, quote, not deemed worthy of respect in today's society, quoting a recent court judgment. So we're talking about viewpoints. You know, I'm talking specifically here about, uh, you know, gender, marriage, family, these sort of issues. We're talking about viewpoints and understandings that have been consistent for thousands of years. Right? Through the church age, through the New Testament era, through the Old Testament era, only in my lifetime, in my culture, have these things been challenged in this way. So these things, the, the ground has shifted very quickly. That's why I'm saying this really, really, really applies to people who are in the first half of their life trajectory. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it out now, you're seeing it in. And you're saturated in it. You know, it, it changed in my lifetime. You've been born into it. It's a big challenge. Just a little aside, God bless the Queen. I would say she appears to be on her own in the establishment in holding firmly and publicly to gospel values. Right? I think it's going to be a sad day when she goes. Because yeah, to me it will feel like the handbrake is fully off. Our culture is just going to go careering downhill, out of control. Now here we go. I don't know if many of you, or any of you, I haven't certainly until quite recently, heard of the research of uh, Professor Unwin, J.D. Unwin. Thank you. Now, this is really interesting. So, Professor Unwin was a 1930s Oxford anthropologist. So, we're talking best part of 100 years ago. You're going to like this. Now, apparently, Dr. Unwin was not a Christian believer, but what he did do was he studied 86 cultures for factors that led to their flourishing or their demise. And according to Unwin, this is his research, I'm not a Christian believer, after a nation becomes prosperous, it becomes increasingly liberal concerning sexual morality. Consequently, it loses its cohesion, impetus, and purpose, which Unwin claims in his research, I mean, he did six volumes, is irrevocable. His conclusion from his data was that abandoning... This is, this is not a Christian believer. His conclusion from studying 86 cultures was that abandoning premarital sexual restraint and postmarital monogamy represented the tipping point into collapse of the culture with monotonous regularity. Within three generations or 100 years, those cultures had entirely disappeared. So Unwin, <laughs> this is really 
Amazing stuff. Unwin highlights three consequences of crossing the tipping point of embracing unbridled sexuality. Number one, an abandonment of absolute heterosexual monogamy. One man, one woman, marriage for life. Right? This is not a Christian. This is an anthropologist speaking, not a Christian uh, believer. Second, so first consequence, you abandon what we would understand to be the, the orthodox definition of marriage. Number two, the abandonment of belief in God. And number three, the rapid loss of rational thinking. You can believe what you want, irrespective of facts or logic. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> this was nearly 100 years ago. I'm absolutely in despair at the moment of the way information and reality and facts are presented in the media, whether it's in America or here or Russia and Ukraine. Ridiculous. People just, they believe what they want to believe. And because they believe it, they believe it's true. Just because they believe it doesn't mean it's true. But they do. And this is exactly what Unwin said happens. when you're, And he connects that resolutely with abandonment of what we would consider to be um, orthodox societal boundaries. So what does that look like? So commentators trying to describe what that might look like for us by 2050 said it would be, this would, what would this potential free fall of society look like? Well, it would take the form of either anarchy and survival of the fittest, or civil war, who knows, you might see that in America before too long, or imposition of a totalitarian government. <laughs> That's not a political statement. Or we'll be subsumed by a stronger country or culture. And Unwin says that many of the cultures studied thought that they would be the exception, but they were not. 86 cultures. So our culture has untethered itself from all biblical norms. Even within the church, the historic and orthodox interpretation of Scripture is being constantly challenged. Now, we would consider ourselves to be a very traditional church. You might be surprised to hear that. Our traditions stretch right back to the New Testament era. Okay? We hold fast to one Bible, two testaments, the ecumenical creeds, uh, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, Athanasian Creed, established within the early centuries of the history of the church. That's where our traditions are rooted. We affirm the authority of Scripture... I'm saying this to you, this isn't a, a, history, a Bible lesson. I'm saying this to the powers and principalities, all right, on our behalf. I'm drawing a line in the sand here, okay? We affirm the authority of Scripture, meaning that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to believe or disobey any words of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. We affirm the clarity of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. We affirm the necessity of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, but it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws, the heavens, pour forth speech about God. And we affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, meaning the Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. 
And here's a quote. I wish I had written this, but here we go. This book has the power not only to inform, but to reform and to transform lives. It is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, divine in authorship, infallible in authority, inexhaustible in meaning, universal in readership, unique in revelation, personal in application, and powerful in effect. Amen. Amen. So what does that mean for us today? Here we go. I may overrun a little bit here. I'll just warn you, okay? I'll apologize to the kids working. Yeah, okay. Here we go. What does it mean for us today? Well, we read earlier from uh, Ephesians 6, well-known passage about the armor of God. If you read through, you would have noted that all of the elements of armor are primarily for defense. So you have the belt and the breastplate and ready feet for running away um, and a shield and a helmet. All these things are like defensive armor. Then in verse 17, we have one weapon, one element of armor, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our offensive weapon, and the devil is trying to take it away from us. And I think he's doing a pretty good job in some places. And if he takes away the Word of God, we've got nothing left to fight with. We have been disarmed. All we can do is run away and hope that our armor holds firm. But with the Word of God, we can go on the attack. We're on the offensive. This is our weapon. If we stop fighting for the authority of the word of God, we have nothing left to fight with. Now, I'm going to switch a little bit here now and just speak. Um, so that's sort of been, a, in a sense, an apologetic for the authority of Scripture. I just want to talk about a prophetic application of this now. I was at a conference a few months ago in uh, Poland, about 800 evangelical leaders, and uh, the European Leadership Forum, and we were in a discussion forum. I was with Mike Betts, and it was a Q&A time. Mike Betts, if any of you know who Mike is, he is one of my co-laborers, my team members, um, based in Lowestoft, and he is ju- he's just the best person for uh, question and answers. You just, you just prod him and wisdom comes out. And so we, we, we stuck him up there and we said, right, ask him any question. And uh, the question came up, what do we do? What does, what is, how should the church respond to this, this, this cataclysmic decline in cultural morality? What should we do about this? How do we respond to that? You know, and uh, you know, we see in a lot of churches there's this inclusive agenda. Well, we love every, God loves everyone, we love everyone, you know, we include you. We're, Whatever you are, you know, what a size, shape, color you are, whatever, you know, you're, you're included. And, uh, we'll, you know, Jesus is love. His love doesn't exclude anybody. How do we respond to a precipitous moral decline? And I was, I was really struck by Mike's answer. And I just want to share the, the bones of that with you because he referred to the prodigal son. And this, this is really helpful for me. I hope it will be helpful for you. So consider the prodigal son. The prodigal son, if you know the, uh, uh, this narrative, he considers the father to be dead. 
so that he can claim his inheritance. Yeah. And uh, he takes his inheritance and he runs away, abandons his father and his homeland, and completely unhinges morally and ethically in speech, behavior, attitude, and values. Now consider the father. The father stands. Okay? This is really helpful. He doesn't move. He doesn't run after. He doesn't make things easier, change the goalposts. He just stands. He stays where he is and he waits prayerfully and patiently for his son to return. Now, there's a verse in this parable that very few of us in the West would give much weight to. So in Luke 15, verse 13, it says this. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, you've probably read those verses many, many times. A study of 100, we did a study of 100 Bible students in the West and in the East and said, read these verses of the prodigal son and retell the story. Now, the 100 Bible students in the West, only six of them mentioned the famine. They just saw it as a sort of like a, well, you know, the guy had squandered everything and there was a famine, you know. Um, but that was just like a supplementary detail. It wasn't particularly important to the... Whereas the 100 Bible students in the East, 84 of them mentioned the famine because they'd lived through it. Their cultural memory had lived through what it meant to live through a famine. Now, in America and, and Britain and so on, we've not really experienced that. But in Russia and these areas, they really have. And so for them, the famine was a big deal. It was a big deal. I would say that brothers and sisters, we're living in a famine today. Okay. Amos 8 and verse 11 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I think we're in, in that famine. People are just, they're starving. They're not hearing the words of the Lord. Individually, that famine could be sort of our yearning, our soul's unsatisfied desire because of the absence of true food, the bread that comes down from heaven. Uh, culturally, it's the craving of humanity for what it cannot satisfy itself. The famine, not of bread and water, but hearing the words of the Lord, the want of words of comfort from the eternal Father to protect and sustain us. Now, Mike was saying, he was just drawing the comparison, saying, our culture is the prodigal son, okay, the lost son who considers God to be dead, considers the church to be dead, and has just run away. He's run away and unhinged morally and in terms of values, but the famine is coming. And one day, one day, there's, there's only two ways this can go for our culture, either like Unwin says, the culture will be dissolved somehow. That's what his studies would suggest. Or culture has to turn back. Culture has to turn back. 
one day we pray that culture will come to its senses and turn and make their way back to God. Okay? And we know there are many turning away from the church, running away with the culture of the land. What does the Father do? He stands. Right? He stands. It would appear that what culture, what the world would tell us is the most loving thing for us to do is to accommodate these things. You know, the, the sort of movement on issues of gender and sexuality and family and the, the dissolving of all these boundaries, we need to somehow accommodate that. Just see what happened recently in the uh, recent Anglican, whatever they call it, I forget now. Synod, that's the word. But we sort of, we've got to try and make a way to accommodate that. That's a loving thing to do. I want to appeal to you today. The most loving thing for us to do today is to stand. Not judgmentally, not like the older brother in this parable. Not critic, but to stand mercifully, graciously, lovingly, holding firm to what the Bible says is true. That is the most loving and helpful thing I can do, is to be where people expect me to be when they turn around and come back. If I move somewhere else and they try to turn back, I'm not there anymore. No, I'm going to stand here. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? I just think it's such a helpful way to, um, you know, and as I say, I'm a bit older than, than, than perhaps many of you here now. You don't have to guess how old I am. But I'm, my kids are all looking after themselves now. I'm thinking, look, I can stand for this stuff, all right? And you can put me in prison. Bite me, all right? Because I could do the rest, <laughs> all right? But you younger generation coming up through this, man, you are gonna, you're going to face something here that is going to be very challenging for you. And I want to stand with you in that, Okay? If we say, right, like the Father, we're going to take our stand. We're not going to move. We're going to wait patiently and prayerfully, full of compassion and mercy, but we take our stand, stay strong on the Word of God. How are we going to do this? Well, number one, know your Bible, read it intensively and extensively, and stand by it. And I promise you, with all love and good cheer, this is going to make you very unpopular. You're going to be very unfashionable in your culture today because culture has ran off over the hill. Okay, You will offend your culture. Perhaps you will lose some friends. Maybe some of us may even lose their jobs or in some areas become unemployable because you're not prepared to say, no, I, yeah, I'll go along with that. And you're saying, well, actually, in my, in my conviction and my values, you know, with mercy and compassion and love, I can't go along with that. It's going to be huge. Maybe some of us may even be charged by police of our land simply for standing on the truth of God's word. I remember I had a, a previous career in the military. I was in the Royal Air Force, and I remember sitting with some uh, fellow officers, uh, as you do, and, um, and one of these guys said, well, no intelligent person believes the Bible today. And this was, I was in my late 20s, and I thought, this is my Waterloo here. <laughs> what do I say? Do I just go, mm, yeah, mm. or do I say, well, actually, you know, 
and uh, with my courage in my hands, this guy was like Mr. Popular in the group. I was like, like you know, one of the twists, you know, please, sir. Actually, I did believe the Bible by faith. Um, and I lived by the Bible. And, uh, you know, it was my moment of saying, no, actually, this matters to me. And I'm going to be conditioned and shaped by it. I'm going to submit my intellect and my preferences, my emotional preferences. I'm going, to, I'm going to submit to the word of God, even if the word of God offends me. Yeah? And I am offended by the word of God at times. There are some things that I really wish I could just say, well, I'll just skip over that verse and just make my life a lot easier. All right? But I, at that moment, it was like, no, I'm going to take my stand. I had to take my stand. Actually, this guy, he, he went on to ask me to be the best man at his wedding. So he respected me. I don't know whether he's, I've lost track of him now. But, you know, but I think in today's age, you may find that by making that stand, there's going to be a price to pay. That's why I'm speaking to the younger half of the congregation, particularly here today. Because this, you've, got to, you've got to make up your mind in this. You know? we, we must stay strong and take our stand. The world needs us to do this. It's the most loving thing to do. One day the famine will hit. Where will they turn to? We've got to be, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. We've got to be careful not to try and make God in our image and make God what we prefer him to be. And I think this is what is happening in the church today. This God is offensive. Let's remake him in a way that is not so offensive to our culture. Well, I think that is, the, that is moving away. That's not standing firm. You know, we're saying, no, this is, this is it. We can't just make God what we want him to be or make him say what we want him to say. God has spoken in Jesus and in his word, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his word endures, and here we stand, and we can do no other, so help us God. <laughs> I can't tell from that reaction whether you are, whether you're processing. You can tell, there's a cost to this, all right? Isaiah 40 says this. This is a great verse. Read the whole chapter as to nourish your soul. I'm just going to pick out a few verses. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert, we're living in a spiritual desert, make straight a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. And surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But... The word of our God endures forever. So you either build your life on, the f on people who are like grass. That's our culture. It's basically, it's just, moral, it's just moral consensus. And moral consensus has shifted and changed. And who knows how it's going to shift and change over the next 30 years. All right? Or you build your life on the word of God. 
which endures forever. And it's the same yesterday and today and forever. So this is my appeal to you. I think we are in a battle today. I'm coming into land now. You might be pleased here. We're in a battle today, and I think the battle is for this. Because our culture has let go of it, and our church is questioning it. The church as a, as a whole is questioning it. And we need men and women to stand firm with love and compassion and say, we're not moving. We believe this is true. Does that offend you? I'm sorry. But I'm going to have to face my maker one day, and I certainly don't want to offend him. And he's given me his word, and I want to shape my life by this. And this is difficult. I preached this message a little while back in another church. Some friends came up, people I've known for many, many years, and their daughter has, is, is now in a same-sex relationship. And, just, well, you know, and they were sort of in despair. What do we do? I said, well, you love. You love them with all your heart, but you stand firm. You know? And you can do both. You can love someone. This is what we don't want to do. Young people, as you... As you if you, if you are standing firm on the word of God, you do not want to become judgmental. You don't want to become, you don't want to become the older brother in the parable. And that's horrible. It's horrible. But the most loving thing you can do is to stand firm and bring people back to the word of God and back to the truth of God. Hallelujah. Shall we pray? Can I invite you to stand? You've been listening for a long time while I've been ranting. Okay, well, I just want to pray for us all. If you feel comfortable, just to hold your hands out, really, just in surrender to God and, and in a submission and receiving from Him. <clears throat> Father, we pray, come, Holy Spirit, take these words, we pray, that are from your heart and press them in our heart, Lord God. We, uh, we, we do so thank you, Father, that you have left your word for us, to shape us and to guide us. Otherwise, we will just, we'll just make Jesus who we want him to be for us. Without your word, Lord, we just, we just basically make God whatever we want him to be. But the word of God constrains us in, in a life-giving way to know you in a way that is reliable and eternally trustworthy. And Father, look on our nation. Look on our nation. Have mercy on our nation, Lord, as we think we're so wise and we think we're so clever and we think we've outgrown you and we think we don't need you anymore and that we're now just untethering ourselves from anything that has moral boundary. Lord God, where does it end? Father, where does it end? Where are the boundaries now? And Father, we pray for our culture that there will be a turning. We don't know how that will look but God, if they don't turn, it's going to be cataclysmic for our culture. It's just going to continue careering out of control. Uh, we pray, Lord God, for our, we pray for those in government, Lord. Oh, give them insight and wisdom that they don't deserve. But give it to them, God. We pray for them. God, what a job. I wouldn't want that job. God, I would not want that job. But God, give them influence. Those who are your followers within government, within all these agencies. Give them courage, Lord, to stand their grounds. Father, and we, we pray particularly, I pray particularly for all of us, but particularly 
for younger people growing up into this mess. Lord, that you will give them such a conviction from, God, from your throne. I don't, want, I don't want young people to feel they have to be loyal to a, a ranting man, but there'll be a deep conviction of the heart from heaven by his spirit that says, no, this is my conviction. It's not my mum's conviction or my dad's conviction or my, my pastor's conviction. This is my conviction. I pray for that. Let that conviction come. Because without it, Lord, we'll get blown away because it's going to be tough. We're in a tough battle. And we're praying for a turning back of our culture to that which is reliable and trustworthy and true. And Father, we want to represent that as best we know how. We pray for the church in our nation that is seeming to weaken on some of these things. It's, you know, the tail wagging the dog. Again, culture describing to the church what its value should be rather than the church describing to the culture what its value should be. And Father, again, we need such grace and mercy. We don't want to be judgmental, legalistic, bombastic. You know, we, we don't want to be that God. We want to be merciful, compassionate, gracious, loving, but faithful to your word. And Lord, that's going to offend people. We know that. Give us, oh, Father, in those days, let us know what to say and what to do because it's going to be, it'll be tough, Lord. So, and I, I want to just particularly pray for any uh, who are listening to this and this is a personal struggle for them. You know, whether it, like I described, uh, friends who, with family members who are struggling in, in area, or maybe even yourself in, in this room thinking, I'm wrestling with these issues. And here's someone saying, well, you know, that's not what God wants. Well, we want to we be the loving father to you. We don't want to be the, the judgmental, critical older brother. We want you to know this is, we want this to be the safe place for you to turn to work these things through. We don't want to drive anyone away we don't want to drive anyone away by appearing to be not accepting or inclusive of, the, of the, the struggle that you're going through. But we want you to say, no, we want to walk this through together. And let's, let's, let's look at the Word of God and allow it to shape us. And not try and shape the Word of God to our preferences. So I just I throw that appeal out to you. If that is your personal battleground, I, I commend these people to you. They, they, if you share with people you love and trust in, they're going to respect you and work through with you what this means with the Word of God and do everything in our power to help you and, and carry you through the dilemmas that, that are being presented to you. So I just pray you'd hear that with a whole heart. So bless this church, Lord. Let it stand firm. Let it be a beacon in a dark place. Let it be a highway through a desert place. Let it be a safe place where many, many can turn and find God and find him in his fullness and in the fullness of authority and sufficiency and clarity and all the things that we've been describing. And be strong. Stand firm. I pray for younger men and women here to stay today. Stand firm. Learn what it means to live in the convictions of your own heart, not to be shaped by the pressures of this world, not to be squeezed into the world's mold, but to be shaped and bounded and firmly established on the truth of the Word of God, and it will go well with you. I pray this to the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.